0: Welcome to episode 148 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Mark Gabriel, President and Chief Executive Officer at United Power and Chair of the Board of Directors at the Gridwise Alliance. United Power is a member-owned distribution electric cooperative serving 900 square miles along the North Central Front Range in Colorado. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. The Climate Champions is also sponsored by the Gridwise Alliance. Uniting grid modernization experts from across the electricity industry, the Gridwise Alliance promotes grid innovation for a decarbonized economy. To learn more, visit gridwise.org. Mark is a 30-year veteran in the electric utility business. He served eight years as the Administrator and Chief Executive Officer of the Western Area Power Administration, served executive roles at Black and & Veatch and EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, where he led the nationwide collaborative effort known as the Electricity Sector Framework for the Future. And to top it off, Mark is an award-winning author. His book, Visions for a Sustainable Energy Future, won the 2009 INSEE Excellence Book Award for environmental writing. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Mark Gabriel, President and CEO at United Power, and he's also Chairman of the Board at the Gridwise Alliance. Mark, welcome to the Climate Champions.
1: Great, it's uh, wonderful to be here. I'm excited to talk
0: to you. You know, I looked at the website for United Power and I saw that you have a very large and complex, thorough renewable energy plan. And that was very exciting
1: when I saw that on the website. Yeah, well, that very much ties to what we call our cooperative roadmap, which really takes a look out first to 10 years and what we need to do to achieve our goals. And then really beyond that, what do we have to do to make sure that we're supporting our communities Because as a rural electric co-op, of course, we're owned by our members, and therefore we've got to understand what they want. So we've developed this roadmap that really lines out both the technology and the generation resources that we have to pick in order to supply our members. From my perspective,
0: one of the things that I don't like is when companies have a 2050 100% goal. I understand that's aspirational and I love it, but for me... The cost of renewables right now is low enough that you could save money as long as you do a reasonable amount and don't overdo it so you don't need to build out your grid too much. And I'd much rather see more short-term goals that get us that cheap energy into the grid.
1: And I think that the concept of 100% renewables is probably overstated. I look at carbon-free resources as a key component of how we have to think about the future. And I agree with you 100% figuring out what do we need to do in two years, four years, and five years, and 10 years is a lot more realistic. And I'm not sure quite candidly that we're going to ever get to 100% carbon-free. There's just this issue called physics that we all have to deal with. So we focus on issues of reliability, affordability, sustainability. Those are critical elements thinking ahead. Now, I do believe there's a lot we can do in both the short and medium term to get to a closer to carbon free grid. But I want us to always focus on really what I think is critical. Look, electricity is the solution, it's not the problem. And I'm glad to see in my 30 year career we're coming back to that concept where we moved away for folks who said, gee, electricity for some reason is bad and evil. I don't think that's the case at all. I think having realistic goals that can be achieved within a timeline that we can live with is much more appropriate than putting an artificial percentage on a number 50 years from now when we, quite frankly, none of us will be around, at least as individuals.
0: I'm excited to take the short term, I'm gonna call them low hanging and medium hanging fruit. Let's harvest those. And by the time we do, I actually believe that we will have the technologies to get us even higher. And by the time we do that, we'll have the technologies at a reasonable cost to get us to that goal.
1: Yeah, look, I, I'm a technology nerd. Uh, I spent eight years at the Electric Power Research Institute of working on a whole host of projects and programs that some of which are now bearing fruit. And that was 20 years ago, right? I always say technology is not a problem till it is, and it's not an opportunity until you take it. So we, we need to think about this in the long term. We need to think about it also though, in what's achievable. The great example that I use today is thinking about building more transmission, right? I ran the Western Area Power Administration for eight years, one of the largest grids in the world. Everybody today talks about building more transmission and I love big iron. However, the reality is for the needs at United Power, I've gotta figure out how do I get enough power to my members in 2024? 25, 26. And that's really led us to thinking about what I tend to call hyperlocalization, which is what resources can I have in my footprint? And how do I first manage those resources? We're blessed here at United Power. I have 11,000 of our 110,000 members have solar rooftops. That's a huge percentage, right? We have 6,000 electric vehicles, more than 250 batteries, and that's out within our community. When I think about power supply, for example, next year we'll be adding almost 100 megawatts of battery storage distributed at a variety of our substations. We're looking at local generation where I don't have to lean on transmission. It's not because I don't love transmission. Believe me, I do, (laughs) but what's the reality? Transmission takes between 10 and 15 years to construct. New power plants are almost impossible to construct at scale. So how do I think about hyper-localizing my system, bringing in renewable and other storage resources to keep the lights on and keep it affordable?
0: Let's step back a bit. What was your motivating moment with regards to climate change mitigation?
1: Well, I look at it, uh, it goes back to 1991. Wow. Yeah, two years into the uh, utility business, purely by accident, a friend of mine uh, worked with me at the Vermont Marble Company. You'll know their big projects, Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers, those kinds of things. Well, Vermont Marble, at the turn of the last century, I'm talking 1900, was one of the equivalent of a Fortune 50 company. Had its own power supply. It had its own generation, had its own hydro facilities. And he asked me to do this project on cogeneration. At the time, we were burning 2 million gallons of fuel oil a year to dry calcium carbonate. Right, you know, calcium carbonates, paint, paper, you know, those kind of things. The the powder, and instead of just burning two million gallons of fuel oil, we were going to use that to run jet engines, to make electricity, to help in our communities. So he asked me to help with this little project. I did, and then he turned around and he asked me. It was kind of one of those moments in in your career. He said, "Hey, Mark, uh, you know, I know you don't work directly for me, but we have to do this thing called demand side management." And I said, "What's that?" And he said, "Well." He said, that's where we tell our customers to use less of our product. And I remember saying to to him, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, And and then next thing I know, I'm designing a demand-side management program. But one of the things I discovered in doing that is, how do we use the resource of electricity more efficiently? And then on the climate piece, happened shortly thereafter. In 1991, I was reading an article in the New York Times where they talked about finding dinosaur fossils in Antarctica. A little light bulb went off in my head. I said, well, wait a second. Antarctica, as far as I know, has penguins and is very cold and icy. What does that mean? And it came as that moment of saying, well, wait a second. That means the climate has changed and it's probably going to change again. So it was really kind of the convergence of those two pieces in my mind that said, well, wait a second, how do we think about climate? is important on how we think about life and society, All right? So it's not a passion to run out, my God, the, you know, the climate, it's, it's horrible, it's gonna be a terrible thing, but rather, how do we prepare society and how do we prepare ourselves for a changing climate? What are those things we can do to maintain, quite frankly, and improve the quality and standard of life that we have, and at the same time, adapt to a changing climate? And that progressed kind of through my career as I think about what is the best and most efficient use of resources. I wrote a book 13 years ago now called Visions for Sustainable Energy Future. And the real premise of that was sustainability, from my perspective, is the efficient use of resources. We don't want to go backwards to the time where people were burning individual, (laughs) burning dung and individual wood in, in our tents. That's just not logical. So how do we then figure out what's the best way to continue to electrify the world and at the same time do that so we're not negatively impacting the climate? And that's a very important balance, right? We know there's roughly a billion people on the planet with no access to electricity. When we look at the impact on climate, when people are burning the local forests, are not managing their resources well, what the impact there is on climate. And over the decades, I have really looked at and thought, gee, how do we better make use of resources so that we can keep the lights on, raise standards of living, improve health and well-being, and at the same time, recognizing we've got to minimize the impact on climate. What drives you personally to help this mission? There's two or three things that go on at the same time. First and foremost, I am passionate about the idea that we've got to raise people's quality of life. When I look out at the less fortunate in society and realize there is an energy gap, an energy chasm that exists, we need to figure out what's the solution there. Not everyone can afford a solar panel. Not everyone will ever buy an electric vehicle. Not everyone can even afford to insulate their homes. So it drives me to think about what do we do for the less fortunate in society that don't have an option, that live in a rental apartment? that have to deal with buying a used vehicle, which is not the most energy efficient way to get around, right? So, so that's one of the drivers. The second is, you know, a little bit selfish. I'm an outdoorsman. I like being out in nature. I'm an avid hunter and fisherman. And when I go out and I look at the impact, a negative impact that we can have or a positive impact, I want to make sure that I've left the world with a positive impact. I think we need to look at electricity as the solution, not the problem. And the way we do that is to make sure we are efficient in the use. There was a period in my career back in Vermont when I first got into the utility business at Central Vermont Public Service, where there was a huge push away from electricity. In fact, there was a a movement to take away electric water heating from people and make them switch to propane and unregulated fuel. It was a misguided attempt At a logical outcome, which was how do we fix the source of electricity so that it can be as carbon free as possible? And the logic was gee, somehow all electricity was bad. And therefore, we've got to get people off electricity and try to move folks to propane, which was unregulated, delivered in trucks through the mountains and cost folks more with no ability to maintain or control prices, right? Propane is an unregulated fuel. So this idea of unintended energy consequences really has to be taken very carefully. And I look at all these steps that we are taking and want to make sure that they are the logical and right ones. You know, I'll give you a great example. Having been involved in energy efficiency programs, how many times did we give out compact fluorescent light bulbs with high quantities of mercury, with low customer satisfaction, The concept of having more efficient lighting was brilliant. The execution wasted billions of dollars in resources and added to our landfills. So part of what I try to always think about is how do we manage and maintain our goals of lower carbon, more efficient use of resources without having a negative impact? Cafe standards are another great example, right? The corporate average fuel economy what happened when that was rolled out initially, it created more problems than it solved. And so I, I, I'm passionate about figuring out what are the right ways to solve the climate challenge without negatively impacting other parts of society. And we've gotta be really careful about that.
0: I had a great boss at SDG&E, Jim Avery. I know Jim. You know Jim? He used to say, give me the goal. Stop telling me how to do it. If you give me the goal, I will meet your goal, I will exceed your goal, I'll do it at a better cost, but if you tell me how, you're
1: handcuffing me and I can't make the right decisions. You know, I knew Jim very well, actually. You know, it's a perfect example, back in Vermont, I ran an electric water heating program, right? Which was very cost-effective, gave us 5% load control. We're talking back in the 90s, right? When we could control our peak by 5%. And the state decided that, gee, We were going to go out and hire companies to wrap the tanks, to put insulation in, do all this. And it was costing $120 per home to do so. My water heating program was doing 2,500 unduplicated visits per year to help maintain the water heaters that we owned and rented out. And I said, you know what? We'll do the efficiency measures while we're there doing the program. We could do it not for $120 a home. We could do it for $10 a home. It's really thinking through the options that we have as a society. I'll go back to my comment about transmission. I love big iron and big transmission, but I know how long it takes. Can we really wait for transmission to be built to hook up renewable energy supplies? Or should we think about how can we localize the renewable energy? How can we use net zero buildings? How can we use technology that exists today to better manage our systems. In fact, next week, I'm giving a, a speech at t and World on this very topic. What does the world look like in 30 years? And to me, it looks like transmission becomes the second choice and the last resort, as opposed to the first resort. I'm an
0: all-arrows-in-the-quiver kind of guy. So I believe, let's do it locally, but let's not, not do transmission. Let's get that going too. I want options because I don't know what the solution is going to be, and we need we need solutions.
1: Lee, you're absolutely correct. It is all about optionality, and it's also about reality. There's tons of talk of hydrogen, and I'm very supportive of that concept. That's why any natural gas units that we may be contracting from here at United Power will have the option to run on hydrogen. With our growth rate right here, I mean, we're growing somewhere between 9 and 10% per year in our load. I need something now, right? I, I need something I could deal with now, but also recognizing that hydrogen may be a perfect solution in 10 or 15 years. So I want to make sure that I don't have to go retrofit by generating units for hydrogen, but rather build that in from the get-go.
0: I was hoping you weren't going to say 10 or 15 years because hydrogen the joke is, as you probably know, it's always 10 years away. I have a buddy, Tim Sassine. He thinks it's gonna be here earlier. And I really hope he's right. It would be great. But of course, we've we've been hoping for quite a while.
1: But look, I think with any technology, we have to hedge our bets. As I said, I, I ran a water heating program 20 some odd years ago in Vermont. And the concept of load control is what we used back then. But when I think about what we're trying to do today, is how do we use the new technology, new computing, new understanding of machine learning and AI to run systems and take that kind of approach, right? We've controlled water heating for 30 years in this country. And yet now it's suddenly being discovered because we have new technologies to manage it. And I look at an integrated approach of a system and believe that distribution utilities in particular have to think about becoming network providers as opposed to simply one-way or two-way communicators with our members or customers. When you
0: meet people that don't believe that the climate is changing and they don't understand the data and how we're causing that to happen, how do you convince them
1: otherwise? Well, what I try to do is personalize it to individuals. Now, as I, I told you, you know, my full admission, I'm a hunter, okay? And I will tell you, sadly, um, many in that community are not, let me say, scientifically oriented. That's a nice way to put it. But we do have conversations of what's happening to the game in the field, what is happening to the weather patterns, how fishing has changed dramatically in certain parts of the country. So if I can help them think through the observational issues, it's a lot better than me trying to hold up a chart and point to various climate activities. People understand intuitively what's happening with the weather. When you talk about global issues and climate, it's very much of a challenge. It's a line that I use very often because my, you know, on one hand, I do drive a Tesla. I will fully admit that. But I also own a Ford F-250 with a 7.3 liter Godzilla engine. And my running line is I do that because it's really hard to put a dead elk or deer in the back of a Tesla, right? And to understand what different tools for different uses is really part of that conversation. The whole electric vehicle conversation is one that I'm always fascinated with. And that is people will say, well, gee, EVs are this or that. I've been driving them on and off for more than 20 years. This is the first one that I drive every single day. And I go back and I think about that whole conversation. The minute I put somebody in the Tesla and let them drive it, I don't care what, if you're a big motorhead or not, they're amazed. And then, of course, on the other side, I asked the question, well, why the heck did it take somebody till 2012 to come up with a car that was fast, comfortable, fun to drive and look good? Because remember, in 1912, 50% of the cars sold in America were electric. So I think that's the conversation has to has to be had. You can't convince somebody who doesn't want to be convinced. On one hand, on the other hand, I, I go with observational science. It works a lot better and it's a lot more powerful for people than showing them charts and graphs. And you know, you've got to make this conversation real. I don't think anyone can look at Hawaii, Oregon canada this past summer and not realize something is significant for those of us who are blessed to live in colorado for example if you look at the damage of the pine bark beetle and you you hark back to 25 years ago when that problem didn't exist it gives us an observational opportunity for people to really see and feel that change
0: my concern is whether the observational lessons will be too late if we need observational lessons to convince everybody and we don't act with great urgency until really bad things happen by definition that means really bad things have happened
1: well you know it's it, what was winston churchill's comment about americans after we do all the ro- the wrong things we we ultimately do the right thing something to that effect i think it's really important to understand from the vantage point of those who are less fortunate. The average family of four in America makes $54,000 a year. They're worried about paying their bills today. And even though you tried to have the conversation, well, gee, you know, in the future, your grandchildren, well, you know, this could be a much worse world. That's a hard argument to make for folks. Therefore, I, I do believe we we need this observational tool along with the technology that we have to make sure that their family bill is not going through the roof. These are folks who will never buy an electric vehicle. They don't own their own home. And we tend to forget in the the circles that we live in, Lee, we tend to forget that our friends and neighbors and and business associates aren't in that class, right? They're not in that category of folks. And I'm very sympathetic to those challenges. And we need to be sympathetic to that.
0: That goes back to my thoughts that let's take the low-hanging fruit because right now electric vehicles aren't for people that are less fortunate financially, but that doesn't mean they won't be in twenty years or thirty years. Let's do what we can do now and step it up as we can do more.
1: Absolutely, Uh, you know, I'll go back to the light bulb challenge, right? And it's going to sound a little bit silly, but at Christmas time, you buy LEDs today. That's kind of a universal thing. 20 years ago, we never did that. We've got to look at those incremental improvements that can be made. We have to understand how that plays out into different segments of society. I'm a big fan of community solar. I'm a big fan of utility scale solar, which allows us to lower the cost of electricity, as well as making sure that we're reducing carbon output right? It's not an either or. If we make it an either or option, the or is going to win every single time, right? Well, arrows (laughs) in
0: the quiver, baby.
1: Yeah. My running line has always been, I've been one of the original, all of the above guys. Yes. Because I look, for example, at the billion people on the planet with zero access to electricity. And would they be better off with a dirty coal plant than what they're doing today, right? And maybe we have to change the thinking. We have to say that a minimum amount of electricity for the people who don't have it would make such a huge change in their lives. I've been in countries where there is no access to electricity, and giving them the minimum 1,000 kilowatt hours a year, right? The average American uses, I don't know, 800 kilowatt hours a month. Giving them 1,000 kilowatt hours a year changes the standard of living, particularly for women and children. It increases life expectancy. It improves productivity. So I think the question is, how do we manage that segment of the conversation at the same time that we encourage those of us who can afford it to drive EVs or support our communities with batteries or make sure that all municipal buildings and government buildings take advantage of the latest technologies.
0: Going back to what I started this conversation with, and that was about United Power's plan around renewables. Can you talk more about what United Power is doing?
1: A hundred percent. We're particularly excited. We're leaving our longtime power supplier May first of 2024. Our current power supplier is more than 50% carbon-based generation. We have announced projects in solar, wind, and storage that will account for roughly a little bit over 60% of our generation. So by definition, we're we're moving down the path. And again, I want to be clear: it's not just about renewables. It's about how do we better use the resources. Over the coming weeks, literally weeks, we will be announcing additional natural gas generation. Again, with the caveat that the new generation be prepared for hydrogen. And whether that comes in 10 years or it's five years away forever, we we can debate that over time. But very importantly, we're also looking at becoming a distribution system operator and not just a distribution operator. There's a key difference there. Of course, in many parts of this country, we have independent system operators, regional transmission organizations. And what we're trying to do is use the intelligence that is being built at the edge of the grid to better manage the resources that we have. I'm particularly excited about the quantity of storage that we're putting in, because that will allow us to buy power when the costs are low and spin it off when the costs are high. We want to be able to better manage our peaks better managed as a system, as opposed to simply thinking about, gee, I got to ship some electrons to my members at the other end of the line. So that involves a combination of renewable energy, storage, some natural gas generation, and using the inherent intelligence and control capability of our system in a new and different fashion. But quite frankly, that latter part, the DSO model is the one that I'm the most excited about.
0: Are you looking to leverage the energy storage by creating microgrids, like keeping some circuits going when there's an outage?
1: You know, microgrid is probably a little bit of an overused term. And I always jokingly say there is no microgrid without a macrogrid, okay? And that's it. I think that's really important for people to recognize. Do I see localized generation and localized components of the grid operating in a unified fashion 100%? We've got several industrial customers, one in particular, a very large industrial customer, and I'm free to say the name, Golden Aluminum. They are our largest non-oil and gas member. And at Golden Aluminum, we work closely with them. They have some on-site generation. They're able to do some load control. We can manage the system with the flexibility that they have because they have some generation. We'll be putting some storage near their facilities. We can have them operate their system at different times for different reasons to help bolster our system. So I always want to be careful. We're looking at a microgrid project right now with Fort Lupton, which is one of our communities, which will combine solar and storage and their water treatment facility. Thinking about all of these as nodes at the edge of the grid and using edge of grid technology to bolster the entire system.
0: I use the term greedy microgrid. In other words, when grid energy is cheaper, I don't want my microgrid limiting my ability to benefit by using grid energy, especially if it's also clean energy. But when the grid energy is more expensive, I want to leverage my microgrid. And when the grid is out completely, I really want to leverage my microgrid.
1: That's to me really at the core of this concept we keep talking about, which is hyperlocalization. I prefer that over microgrid because microgrid tends to define a specific small geography, and I'm trying to expand kind of the concept of what that geography looks like. Look, when a market comes here to Colorado, fingers crossed, in 26, thanks to FERC order 2222, our vision is to buy and sell power into and out of the market. But if I can become my running joke as an electron prepper and make sure that my community is served first, and then reach out to other communities, hook back to the grid, take advantage when low cost energy is available, that benefits everyone. goes back to my days 30 years ago, designing an energy efficiency program. Why do we do it, right? There's benefits in climate, there's benefits in cost, but there's also benefits in actually running a reliable grid. If we learned anything in the pandemic, it's the value of local high quality, high reliability power right? When we moved everybody to their homes and apartments, suddenly the realization was, wait a second, I've got to keep my lights on. I have to have high-speed internet. I have to have my telephones working. Those things are so critical. And from my perspective, a hyper-localized system does that. And it goes back in history. Think about this, when Thomas Edison and Sam Insull really built our business, along with Mr. Westinghouse, what did we have? We had hyper-localized systems. That's what all started. JP Morgan put a generator in his backyard. Sam Insull wanted to power his lake house on Lake Michigan out of the generation that they built for the Chicago railway system for the L. He was the first run to run transmission out, but it started as a localized system. I think it's going to be a back to the future movement. You know, I keep saying I'm a big iron guy, I love big power plants. There's nothing I'd rather see than some small modular reactors popped in in the backyard. But I'm also a realist. What can we do in the short and medium term to help supply a power-hungry society in a way that's environmentally friendly?
0: Without being too negative, a lot of CEOs understand they might only have a five-year runway. And so it's very easy to make 10-year goals and then ignore them for their term but what you're saying is you want to make that impact while you know you're going to be there. Do we exactly. do now?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, I I learned that I've, I've been CEO now in a couple organizations for the last, I don't know, 12, 13 years. And you're absolutely correct. I only create a 10-year roadmap because I found that five years is too short. 20 years is too long. But 10 years gives you enough ramp and runway to get something done. But a roadmap is no good if you're not getting to intermediate destinations. I always think about, right, you go on a road trip with your family, you pick the location, you know you have to stop on the way and get gas, you know you have to eat, you you have to use the facilities. So a roadmap is only as good as those intermediate stops. And again, we're putting into play here at United Power. We had a real hard date. Two years ago, we announced we were leaving our power supplier. That gave me literally a two-year runway to find new power supply. We know that our power supply is going to change yet again, two years from May, so May of 26, and have already solicited for new generation resources and new technology resources. And we know that by the end of the decade, our utility will be probably two to three times our size because of the embedded growth that we have in this service territory north of Denver, around the Denver airport. So we have to have a window that looks 10 years, but at the same time, we also have to have accomplishments that can happen now, with more than a thousand of our members adding solar rooftops every month, with more than a thousand of our members buying electric vehicles every single year. The march is on, so we have to have intermediate steps that say, okay, We're going to have a certain percentage of our power through carbon-reduced resources as opposed to some magic percentage. (laughs) The state of Colorado has a rule of 80% by 2030. That works great if you've got a stagnant system. I don't have a stagnant system. For me to get to 80% by 2030 based on 2005 numbers actually means I have to be well over 95% carbon reduced because of our growth. So we've got to figure out what do I do now? What do I do next year? What do I do in the next 36 and 48 months to get ready for all of this and make sure that it aligns with our overarching goals, which is clearly reliability, resilience, affordability and sustainability?
0: Yeah. Think globally, act locally, but you're doing it in a different way. You're thinking
1: long term, but you need to act short term. Exactly. Exactly. Because here's the thing. I don't have a choice, right? At 9 to 10% growth rate, I've got to get more power supply anyway. It's not like I've got an option. I'm not sitting here at 1% or 0% growth. I'm dealing with 9 or 10% growth. We have huge companies coming in. We have 5,300 oil and gas wells in our service territory, and they are under their own goals to reduce their carbon intensity. That's 600 megawatts. I'm a 640 megawatt peak load right now. Just trying to help the oil and gas industry, it could double my load. The railroad is moving to our service territory in a big way. They want to have all electric intermodal center. I've got three data centers coming in. Now, I know folks get jealous and say, well, stop complaining with your mouth full, Mark. But I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to figure out how do I manage the growth at the same time as make sure that my supply meets our overarching goals as laid out in our cooperative roadmap? I understand
0: this is creating problems for you, but I'm very, very happy because it's moving us in the right direction with regards to climate change mitigation.
1: I try to make sure that we always have context. So what does context mean to me? We've got more and more of our members more of our industrial and certainly commercial loads that want to have a more carbon-free resource. It helps their goals. I had a meeting last week with folks from one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world. They're a big player in our footprint. And we were talking about their carbon goals and how simply by changing our fuel mix, I'm going to help them meet their next three-year goals. Because by changing from our current power supplier, which is more than 50% in coal, and switching to what will probably be 10 to 15% of fossil fuel, well, we automatically drop their carbon output, right? So they can gain credit for it. And at the same time, it helps us meet our goals. And at the same time, it helps meet the climate and environment. At the end of the day, I'm a green guy, but my green is about what are the dollars? How do we do this efficiently and effectively? because I go back to my deep concern, and that is for those who are less fortunate in society to be able to take advantage of this. We gotta be careful we don't become environmental imperialists, lecturing people on, you better put solar panels on or you should drive an EV, when in fact they can't afford that. So how do I work as a utility CEO in lowering costs for everyone or keeping costs under control? How do I best do that? And that's with generating resources that are cleaner, that are lower carbon. So it's really the corny proverbial win-win across the board.
0: I also talk about green in terms of both emissions-free and clean, but also green means cash. With regards to EVs, I used to say red, white, and blue, and green times two.
1: I very much like that. Look, the EV thing is the perfect example. I first drove an EV when I was with the Electric Power Research in 98, 99. And my reaction at the time was, wow, this is really quite something. Why do they make them so ugly? (laughs) And I am 100% convinced to this day that U.S. car manufacturers intentionally made their cars as ugly as they could so they would only appeal to a niche market. And it took somebody like Elon Musk, whether you like Elon or not, to come along and say, we don't have to make an ugly car to make an EV. And he's proven it. Yeah, I have some
0: issues with Elon Musk, but what I have to give him credit for is he did put the EV mission on his back to a large extent and changed what we think of as an EV. And now all the other OEMs have followed suit.
1: And I tend to agree. This isn't a personal thing with Mr. Musk. I don't know him. I've yet to meet him. But I do think about folks like that really challenging the thinking of the embedded utility industry as well. The concept of storage. Using batteries to better manage a system is, I think, going to be the biggest wake up call for the electric utility business. Just as Mr. Musk has done with Starlink and communications. I have a house in the mountains and I put Starlink in about two months ago. It's been a revolution in terms of communications, entertainment, and all of those things. I think the same thing is going to happen with storage and whether it's Mr. Musk or someone else, storage is the game changer in thinking about how to operate the system differently, but it's gotta be mated really with more intelligence. And right now there's kind of a gap. There's an air gap between storage SCADA and whatever the next piece of our world is gonna be, but that will change everything. And I realize it's always hard for folks who own embedded infrastructure, to have the moxie to step out and make the change. But unless we do that, we don't move ahead in society. I go back to the railroads. It's fascinating, A 100 years ago, there were 420,000 miles of rail line in the United States. Every city of any consequence, and many of non-consequence, had had a trolley system. Today, we have less than 120,000 miles of rail lines. Other than San Francisco and maybe a couple of oddities, there are no trolleys left in the United States. Why? We distributed the transportation resource to cars and trucks and buses, right? We changed that paradigm. And I think that paradigm is going to happen again. And I think storage is the core of the paradigm. We used to always say at every, uh, you know, the problem with storage was that it's just too expensive and it's not dense enough. And I, I truly believe we thought about it the wrong way in those days. And the way we consider it today, which is distributed storage across multiple locations, is probably going to be the biggest game changer.
0: I have been saying that since I first got involved with Smart Grid, that it's the holy grail
1: for energy. And it's, it, you know, cost is one thing, but the flexibility As I said, our plan at United Power is we're going to be putting 80 megawatts of battery storage separated, right, at eight substations, 10 megawatts apiece. We're not blocking them into some giant facility. We're literally hyper-localizing them to the substations, which allows us reliability, allows us much more focused control on the system. We're blessed here that I've got four different transmission providers which hit my system so that Depending on what happens with markets or power prices, we can load up those batteries in a very different fashion. So while technology of batteries has only moved a little bit, quite frankly, the form factor has changed, power electronics have changed, I think we've got an opportunity that is only now coming to light because of control systems, because of how we can think about it.
0: I helped launch a company called PICE, and it controls the phase angle of the battery inverters so that you can have a 100% renewable energy system. And you can ensure that the voltage and the frequency are near perfect. It's pretty exciting stuff, but it really relies on a battery.
1: And that's great stuff, but I, I even look at it one step further. To me, the step further is that's just a small slice of using artificial intelligence and machine learning to operate as a system. The analogy that I always use, I'm sitting here in an office with a VoIP phone, a computer that's hooked to a, a LAN system, an Apple Watch, an iPad, an iPhone, and hearing devices that are all seamlessly integrated. Now, I will admit the VoIP doesn't work so great sometimes. However, the reality is we figured out in telecommunications how to seamlessly integrate using intelligence in the background. We need that intelligence then spread to the grid so we have it, make it seamless choices. One of the things having designed energy efficiency programs in my past and thinking about them today, I truly believe most consumers do not really care other than what's my bill, right? I want heat, light and comfort and motive power and what's my bill? If you ask most people what the kilowatt hour price is, they look at you and they'll tell you it's $125 a month, right? So what do we need to do? We need to make that integration as seamless as it is today to use your cell phone or your iPad or your your Apple Watch. So how do we seamlessly integrate batteries, phase angle, power off the grid, power off the battery, power off your rooftop so that it just lives in the background like we've done for 120 years? For
0: people who want to help mitigate climate change that are listening, what advice do you have for them?
1: First and foremost, do not forget those who are less fortunate in society. And I know the argument. The argument very often is, well, gee, they're the ones most impacted by climate damage. That still doesn't solve the problem for those who cannot afford an EV, cannot afford a solar panel, cannot afford to insulate their home. I think the second thing is to really support those companies that are making the effort, even though the effort may not be as high and fast as you want, but recognize that change can happen in small increments until it becomes a huge motion, right? So I think that's really very important. And the more that we can talk about climate science in a way that is relatable, the better off we are. It does no good to be extremists. Even though you may feel we have to do something right away, I think it's important to have the conversation without hysteria, but within reality.
0: And is there anything else you want to say?
1: I have dedicated my career by accident 30 years ago to this industry. There's nothing more wonderful and amazing as far as I'm concerned. I've gone on every night for 30 years thinking that I've done something good for society. And while that sounds lofty, I think that's uh, those of us who are in the electric utility business really believe that. There's nobody sitting in the dark room saying, how can we despoil the environment? People are saying, how do we make sure electricity is affordable, reliable, obtainable, in a way that helps society move forward? And as my old boss used to say, electricity is the solution, it's not the problem. And on that note,
0: I'm gonna wrap this up and I'm gonna wrap it up with a wrap. With regards to the less fortunate, you want to release some of their strife, and one of the ways is to raise their quality of life. You're an outdoorsman, a hunter. You want to keep our Earth intact, but you also want to make a positive impact. You believe in leveraging innovation, and you call a microgrid hyperlocalization. You believe we have to manage our resources well. You use observational science and that's how you sell. Hyperlocalization, it's very hard to spell. Plan long term, but act short term. That's the story that you tell. We're going to change the energy storage paradigm. That's why we'll not hear another trolley bell. Thank you very much, Mark
1: Gabriel. I think you missed your calling. (laughs) Eminem needs to be worried. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I know that's not true.
0: appreciate Mark's strong focus on ensuring electricity is available for those less fortunate. Just a small amount of electricity can improve almost every facet of their lives. For them, for all of us, electricity is the solution, not the problem. We just need to generate power in a sustainable way. Then energy customers in Colorado, heat pumps, and EVs can all come along for the ride. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevattenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. I'm a numbers person, so it's difficult not to get wrapped up in all the data. But I agree with Mark. In discussing the impact of greenhouse gases, we need to find relatable ways to discuss the issue. The effects are all around us and everyone is impacted in some way. And while I hope we can find solutions prior to even bigger consequences, we need to leverage current real impacts that people understand to help mitigate climate change.